Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Matthew chapter 22, we have been looking at, as I know I say it all the time, but I think one of the best ways to learn things is just sort of through this process of repetition, and it just sort of gets in there. So we have been talking about how in Matthew 20, 21, 22, we're coming to that week that is called the Passover week. Jesus has triumphantly entered into the city, and he is making his way ultimately to the cross on that Friday. And in that week leading up to him giving his life as the Passover lamb, there was a series of confrontations that took place. You know, we've looked at some of those. And so we saw that even with the triumphal entry, the parade uh, of people that are cheering him on, the religious leaders confront him for that. They challenge him for, how could you, why would you get on a donkey and come into the city like this? You know what that represents. You know what it symbolizes. Make your disciples stop. And Jesus didn't make his disciples stop at that time. We saw how on the next day he went into the temple and he overturns the tables of the money changers because of the corruption uh, that was taking place there and how that was connected to the religious leaders and the, the worship and how people were disgusted with God because of all that was going on. And Jesus upsets that and he throws over the money tables. We saw that he began to teach straight up teachings. You're bad, he would say to the religious leaders, and also parables in which they would walk away saying, I think that was about me. And he was saying that I was bad. Uh, and so that confrontation, we saw those things. So there's these confrontations, a series of them. Well, today what we're going to see are a series of orchestrated challenges against Jesus designed to trip him up and get him in trouble, either with one group of people or another, or ultimately to get him in trouble with the authorities. And so that's our plan today to look at as we make our way through the the end of chapter 22. It's interesting. We are in the Passover week. Jesus, we know, is the Passover lamb. And one of the things that, I, that stood out to me as we've been studying the book of Exodus on Wednesday evenings, we were looking at the Passover, the first, the original Passover. And there, one of the things we see is that the family was told to take a Passover lamb, to take a lamb into their home, and then after, and keep it there for four days, and then after those four days, to bring it to the priest where they would examine the lamb to make sure that it was up to spec, so to speak. And it's interesting to take notice that's what's going to happen today. One group after the other group after the other group examines Jesus. They put Jesus to the test, and he passes every one of those tests, and he is the perfect Passover lamb. So take notice with me. Just We're going to skim for a moment. Look at verse 15 for a minute. It says, Then the Pharisees went and they plotted how to entangle Jesus in his own words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Look at verse 23. Next scenario, next scene. It says, That same day, Sadducees came to Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question. They put him to the test. Look at verse 34. It says, But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, then they gathered together. And so what we have is there's a very short span of time, it seems like one right after the other after the other, where three different groups of Jewish society come so that they can challenge Jesus and they can trip up Jesus in one way or another. Now, let's go back and look at them. In verse 15, the first group is this strange consortium of the Pharisees and the Herodians. As it says in verse 15 there, then the Pharisees went and plotted... 
how to entangle Jesus in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. And so prior then to coming to Jesus, they begin to plot, figure out a way. How can we entangle the Lord? How can we snare him in such a way that he'll get tripped up and this whole Messiah thing will just fade away because people will see him for who he really is? Now notice in verse 16, to do this, they join themselves with the Herodians. Now, the Pharisees and the Herodians were at completely different ends of the religious and the political spectrum of first century Judaism. The Pharisees and the Herodians never partnered themselves up, and yet they do here. They partnered themselves up in their opposition to Jesus. The next group that's going to come to Jesus, you're going to see in verse 23, or as we read, the Sadducees. Now, Matthew points out that the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection which is ironic because they come to Jesus and ask him a question about the resurrection. Now, if you don't even believe in it, why would you come and ask a question about it? Obviously, there's something more that is going on. The reason for their question is not to find an answer. It's to trip Jesus up in one way or another. And then the last group that's going to come, as we saw, is in verse 34. And this, once again, it says that they gather together to come against the Lord. This, once again, are the Pharisees. So in the first scenario, it was the disciples of the Pharisees. These are the students, the learners, and they had a little field trip activity that they had to go do, go trip up Jesus along with the Herodians. Then the Sadducees, and now, once again, the Pharisees. And what they want to do is they want to force Jesus to take a side on a theological issue. Pick a theological issue because if you look out there, this group over here is going to think this way. This group over there is going to think that way. Jesus, you pick one. And in doing so, either this group's going to hate him or this group's going to hate him. And so they're trying to trip Jesus up. Let's dig in. Sound good? Verse 15. Then the Pharisees went. They plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And that you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought Jesus a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and whose inscription is this? And they said, Well, it's Caesar's. And he said to them, well, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and they, have, they went away. So we've already taken notice that before they come to Jesus, they plot. So they're not sincerely coming to the Lord. They're not trying, you know, we've been wrestling with this. We just don't know what to do. What should we do? They're plotting how they might trip Jesus up, how they might entangle him in his own words. They're saying to themselves, all right, what plot, what plan can we come up with so that Jesus will say something that will get him in trouble with others? And as we learned in verse 16, the plan that they come up with, they got to get some help for it. And so they go over, they enlist the services there, as we see, of the Herodians. Now, I told you those two are different groups of people. The Pharisees are the hyper-strict religious leaders who seek to keep even the most minute details of the law. That's the Pharisees. 
the Herodians on the other side weren't really even religious at all. They were Jews and there was probably a, a modicum of religion in there or whatever, but they weren't really a religious group. They were more a political group. Their chief passion was not theology, it was not religion, it was not probably not even God, but it was politics. And so they're this political group, and as their name implies, they were Herodians. They were submissive to and supportive of the Roman authorities that were in control of the area there of Israel or of Jerusalem, and they were submitted to it. The Pharisees didn't want anything to do with Herod and the Roman authorities and would throw them off if they had the power to do so. So you have these two opposite groups of people that now come together in a very unlikely alliance. And they say to Jesus, Teacher, we know that you're true and that you teach the way of God truthfully, that you don't care about anyone's opinion and you're not swayed by appearances. This is what we refer to in the Greek as buttering Jesus up. They're coming to Jesus, they're buttering him up. I'm kidding, friends. My gosh. All right. And they're assuming that by flattering Jesus, saying, you're pretty great, you're pretty awesome, that Jesus is going to be like, I am pretty great, and I am pretty awesome, and I, you know, I am not afraid of anyone. And that he'll be sub subjected there to kind of not want to risk losing those accolades. And so again, they come to him and say, look, we know you're true. We know you're honest. We know you don't worry about what people think of you. So give us an answer to this, qu this question. And the butter is sufficiently lathered on Jesus. They throw him a whopper. They throw him a question which is designed to trip him up. They say in verse 17, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now the Herodians would answer that question, sure it is, because they're the people that are over, top of, over us. The Pharisees would answer that question, no, it's not okay, you know, this kind of thing. One day God's going to get them. And so if Jesus answers the question one way or the other, half of the group is going to hate him. And so they pose the question, if, he is, if it is lawful, Jesus says, yes, it is lawful, then the religious Jews are going to hate him. If he answers it the other way, then the Herodians will, like, will hate him, and so on. You go back and forth here. And they put Jesus in this impossible situation where no matter how he answers the question, one side or another is alienated from him, or so they think. And so Jesus sees through their flattery. He sees through their trap. He challenges them. In verse 18, notice it says he is aware of their malice, their ill intent. And he, he says, why do you put me to the test? And then he calls them hypocrites. He says to them, look, don't come here flattering me with words about how good and how wonderful I am and my teaching are, when in reality all you're really trying to do is trip me up and ensnare me. He says he calls them hypocrites. And then he says, show me the coin for the tax. Now, in first century Judaism, there was a variety of taxes that were required of the Jewish people, that the Roman government put in place of the Jewish people. Some of those were, there was a tax on their crops and their produce, and so if you produce grain, 10% of your grain, your produce, had to go to the Roman government. If you produce something like oil or wine, grapes and oil and wine, then 20% of that had to go to the Roman government. They had a tax on income. Uh, however it is you obtained it, if it wasn't from grain and, uh, and there's other things, then tax on income. There was what they called a citizenship tax. A citizenship tax was essentially, you have the privilege of living in our country, now pay us. And you had to pay for the privilege of living in their country. And I think that's what's being expected here 
because the citizenship tax was a denarius, and so that's what's being asked of here, a denarius, the example of. He says, show me the coin for the tax, and they brought him a denarius. It seems like they're collecting the citizenship tax or asking a question about that. Notice Jesus says, whose likeness, whose inscription is on the coin? And they very quickly, they respond, it's Caesar's. Now, archaeologists have found and uncovered examples of these coins. Uh, just this last summer in July, there was a discovery in, pain, in Spain. And remember, Rome spread out all over the place, not just over Israel. And so that's not the best picture in the world. But that's a little pot up there you can see. And it, it, inside of that little pot were coins. Someone had a little bank thing going on in their house there. Uh, we have a little more of a close-up one here. And you could see the head of a person there. That's Caesar, the inscription around it. It's in Latin. Where's my daughter? You're studying Latin. What's that say, dear? All right, we'll just we'll move on from there. Okay. <laughs> That's a little more advanced. They didn't get there yet. All right. And we have coins. We have currency with headshots on them. So we have George Washington and Lincoln and Harriet Tubman and so on. And we do it in our society to honor folks for their significant contributions to the nation. That's not what the Romans were doing. They had one head on their coins or on their currency, and that was the head of Caesar. And it was designed to communicate this need, this demand to be in subjection to Caesar. It was as if no matter where you went and you pulled coins out of your pocket or you put the bill down or whatever it was, that the all-seeing eye of the Caesar was never too far away. And for the Jews, that was a constant reminder of the oppression, at least how they felt, the oppression that they were under. Now, on top of that, the Romans believed that the Caesar was himself a deity. And so there was this idea that floated around amongst the Jewish community that if we are using coins that have the image of, the picture of, a, a person that is believed to be a deity, somehow we're buying into that idea. And so many Romans rebelled against, or excuse me, many Jews rebelled against the idea at all of even using the money so as to not, uh, it, not to look like they were somehow agreeing with the fact that he was a deity. And so with all that in mind, Jesus says, bring me a coin. Then he asks the question, whose image is on it? They immediately respond, it's Caesar's. And he then says, well, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But then notice what he adds here. So he kind of answered their question, but he adds more to the answer. And he, he adds in verse 21, and give to God what belongs to God. And what it is, is it really is a brilliant answer. Even notice, look at verse 22, they marvel at his answer. Even they know that it is a brilliant answer. And the reason why it is brilliant is because Jesus is essentially saying, because the coins are stamped with Caesar's image, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. And because you are stamped in God's image, give back to God what is God's. But that is not what the Jewish leaders were willing to do. They were not willing to bring themselves into submission to the idea that God had sent his Messiah and that his name was Jesus and that he was standing right there in front of them. And Jesus calls them out on it. And he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. Interesting, they had come to put Jesus to the test and somehow Jesus turned it around and put them to the test. And now they're sitting there like, I'm sorry I came, or whatever. And that's gonna happen each time in these interactions here. So notice it says they marveled and they left him and they went away. 
Now, I think there's a lesson for here which is not intended in the passage, but I'll draw your attention to it since we're here. Who knows when we'll be back in Matthew 22? It may be forever. At the pace we're going, it probably will. (laughs) So it's not really the point of the interaction, but a lesson that we learn here is uh, the reality of the dual citizenship of the follower of Christ. That not only are we citizens of heaven, but we are citizens of the earth as well. Specifically, we are citizens of the nation that we inhabit or working toward that and so on. And as citizens of this dual realm, there are expectations that must be met. First Peter says this. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. And so Peter tells us to fear God and to honor the king, honor the emperor. The King James words it as the king. The scripture makes clear that we are to obey the laws of our land. Romans chapter 13, 1. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. There's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. The scripture makes clear, no one's going to like this, but we are to pay our taxes. Romans 13, 6. I heard that, Jay. Romans 13, 6. It says, this is also why you pay taxes. Skip down. If you owe taxes, pay taxes your taxes. Scripture makes it clear that we are to show honor to our elected officials and that we are to pray for them. Also in Romans 13, it says, remember where it said, if you owe taxes, pay taxes? Well, the way that's worded, if you owe revenue, then revenue. If you owe respect, then respect. And if you owe honor, then pay honor. Now that's a piece of cake when we like our elected officials, but it's not so enticing when those we did not support for office are put in place. Now remember, Paul and Peter, and this has nothing to do with Trump and Obama. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about every elected official for the last, I'm 45 years old. We have to learn to respect those individuals. Both Paul and Peter wrote these words when they were under the occupation of a foreign people. They were under the control of perhaps one of the most wicked individuals that has ever lived on this earth, a man by the name of Nero. And Paul and, and, and Peter both write that we are to respect and honor those officials. What this passage in Romans 13 does is makes it abundantly clear that we are to obey our government, the government that God has put over us. It even refers to the government as his servant accomplishing his purpose. So this passage and others make clear that God created government and that those governments are his servant to establish order, to punish evil, and to promote justice. And if you're interested in the passages, you can look at Genesis chapter 9, you can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and you can look at Romans chapter 12. Now, is there ever a time when we should intentionally disobey the laws of our land, or even to the extreme, throw off the chains that bind us? Think, for instance, of the American Revolution. Was that a Christian thing that that Christians could be involved with? I I believe that there is. And we see an example... Despite the apostles in Acts chapter 5 being given a direct order by the ruling authorities that they were not to speak any longer the teachings of Jesus, what do those disciples do? They continue to speak the teachings of Jesus. And when they were arrested and the authorities come to them and said, didn't we command you? Didn't we tell you? Didn't we make a law that said you can't do these things? Their response was, we must obey God rather than men. And so the point is this. 
Whereas we are to obey the laws of our land and the laws of our God, in instances where those two come in conflict with one another, our first allegiance must remain to God. Now, let me tell you this. If that is what you're doing, and you believe, you know what, my first allegiance has to be to God, and the authorities come, and you get in trouble for that, there will be consequences for your decision. And for you to just simply say, well, I had to obey God rather than man, so I can't be put in jail. Not necessarily the case. Look at our brothers and sisters around the world that are living in countries where it's illegal to name the name of Christ. It's illegal to share your faith with another person. And they're experiencing the consequences of breaking those particular laws. But like Peter said, like John said in Acts chapter 5, we must obey God rather than men. And so we are in a free society. We have the privilege of electing our leaders. We have the privilege of pursuing elected office ourselves. And sometimes what that might mean is, here I am, I'm a good citizen, I pray for my uh, elected officials that are above me, or as many, I oftentimes forget the local guys, I pray for the big guys, but usually I forget the local guys, I don't even know who the county freeholders are, so they just get lumped together, Lord bless those guys, whatever they do, I don't even know, but you know, bless them, kind of thing. And so we can pray for them, we can honor them, but we can even work against them in our society. And what I mean simply by that is, look, I don't agree with your policies, And I think that these policies would be better. And so I'm supporting this person to run against you, or I'm going to run against you. And I'd encourage you, some of you guys, to do that. Develop a biblical worldview of what it means to be a citizen of society, and then take that to Washington. Take that to the local down in Trenton or Ewing or Lawrence, wherever it is that you live. And so it's a strange situation where we are called to honor our elected officials, but at the same time, we can look to get them out of office so that we could be an elected official instead of them or somebody else. And and the key is this, my friends, do it with honor and do it with respect. Paul tells us that the office is deserving of it. All right, that's just a little bonus material for you to think about, have some fun with. Let's go back to our passage. Look at verse 23. In verse 23, we have a second group that comes to oppose Jesus. I'll read their account to you. It says, now the same day... The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. They asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his mother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, all the way down to the seventh, all of them died. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? for they all had her. But Jesus answered, you're wrong, because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what, you said, what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teachings. So, First group, verse 15, we said were the Pharisees. This next group now are the Sadducees. 23 tells us that. I pointed out to you that the Pharisees were the ultra-strict, theologically, theologically conservative Jewish leaders. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were the ultra-lax, theologically liberal Jewish leaders. Now, there was much less of this demographic group of Sadducees, but... 
because it was comprised of sort of the who's who of society, it was comprised of the social elite, sort of what developed was this informal aristocracy in society, and it was those people who primarily made up the Sadducees. And so even though it wasn't a large demographic group of first century Jerusalem, it was a group that had quite a bit of influence in society. Notice about these Sadducees, this theologically lax group of people. Notice it says that they did not believe in the resurrection. For the Sadducees, the idea of the resurrection was akin to them believing in Santa Claus or something like that. It was a fanciful notion. And so the Sadducees, they denied the existence of angels. They denied the existence of the miraculous. And they basically, anything outside of their own rational and tangible experience, they rejected. Clearly that can't be true. That's what children believe, or like they do in Santa and so on. So here's this group, and they see that their theological opponents, the Pharisees, have just been made to look silly. And so the Sadducees, the smart ones of society, they see an opportunity to jump in themselves. And they can make Jesus look silly, and they could also make the Pharisees look even more silly. And so they jump in, and notice as we said, despite not believing in the resurrection, they ask Jesus a question about the resurrection. And so they say, teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now that, so far, so good. They're quoting the Bible to Jesus, seems like they believe it. They referred to the law of Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5, it says, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother, unmarried brother, should go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. She would conceive, and then that child would be as if the older brother who passed away, it would be as if it was his child, and continue on the family line on behalf of that particular person there. Obviously, it's something we don't do in our particular society, but they quote this passage, and they say, Jesus, what do you do? And they give them this crazy scenario in which there are seven brothers each one of them marrying the lady because the one before them has died. Now, I think the first question should be asked, what's up with this lady that all seven husbands that she has had end up dying? That should be the first question. I think we need to open an investigation into what's going on. But what the Sadducees are doing is purposefully creating this extreme scenario for Jesus to comment on. And they say, in heaven, whose wife is she? Will she, will she be the first husband or the last one? Or maybe she can pick, Jesus, the one she liked the most. You know, who's she going to be when she gets to heaven? Tell us, Lord, whose wife is she? It's an attempt by a group of intellectual snobs to make a mockery of the simple faith of those that believe in things like heaven and angels and miracles and all of those, in their mind, childish types of things. And so they're saying to Jesus in this, Jesus, are you one of those naive Bible believers? Or do you agree with those that are more intellectually refined and advanced in our thinking? Now, once again, Jesus is put on the hot seat. And he can either agree with the Bible and be mocked by this group as a simpleton in their mind, or he can agree 
with the so-called religious elites of society, he can agree with the Sadducees and alienate himself from the masses of people that do believe with childlike faith. And like the Pharisees before him, the Sadducees are convinced that they have put Jesus sort of on the hot seat. They cornered him to a place where there's really no good answer for him because whatever he answers, someone's not going to like him. Continuing in verse 29, Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, back in verse 18, Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites. In this paragraph we're looking at, he really calls this group uh, ignorant. He says, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. You come flattering me, but you don't really mean it. You guys come here trying to test my Bible knowledge and this and that, but you don't even know the scriptures. He calls them ignorant. He says in verse 29, you do not know the scriptures. Now, and then he says, the ones you do know, remember Deuteronomy 25, they they knew that the scripture said that if one husband dies, the second husband was supposed to take that wife and so on. Even the scriptures you do know, he says, you don't understand. You don't know the, the you have no knowledge of the power of God, he says. And so again, like the Pharisees, they thought they came to put Jesus on trial, but he in turn puts them on trial. He says to them, you don't know the scriptures, you don't know the power of God, and then he goes on to explain it to them in verse 30. He says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Notice the first thing about what Jesus says to them. The first thing that we notice here is that Jesus believes in the resurrection, and he's not afraid to say so. He comes right out and says, in the resurrection, this is what it is, and you don't know that because you don't understand the scripture. They didn't believe in the resurrection. He does believe in the resurrection. So that's the first thing that they got wrong. Secondly, he calls them out for not knowing that in heaven no one is married or given in marriage. Now, if you are newly married here, or you're about to get married, that may sound horrible. Oh, my dear sweet Wesley, what will I do without him in heaven? Or something like that. If you've been married for some time, you love your husband, you love your wife very much, but you're probably thinking, you know what, Lord, whatever you want to do is fine. I trust your judgment. So for those of you that are fearful that you'll never see your husband or wife in heaven, let me alleviate a few fears that you may have. This is not to say that we won't know our loved ones in heaven, just that the nature of our relationship will be different than it is presently comprised. So if your husband or your wife is a believer, you'll know them in heaven and your heart will be full in heaven. The Bible's clear. None of us are going to be disappointed. This stinks, man. can't believe it. this heaven thing. None of us are going to be disappointed in heaven. We're all going to be just fine and happy, okay? So these guys, they come to Jesus with a question about marriage, and he uh, promptly corrects them. Now, he, he adds, I love this about the Lord, he adds, he's, it's essentially, he's like, you know, since I got you here, why don't we talk about something else? You've asked me this question, but since you're here, let's talk about another matter. What's this I hear about your little group not believing in the resurrection. Notice what he does in verse 31. He says, now as for the resurrection of the dead, let's talk about another matter. What's this about you guys not believing in the resurrection? He says, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now again, they have come to put Jesus on the spot. Now they're put on the spot. I think that's good, actually. 
When we come to the word of God, let God put us on the spot. Oftentimes we come to the word of God maybe to put God on the spot or maybe to put other people on the spot. Lord, give me a verse so I can share it with that sinner around the corner. You know, they need to hear one. Let God put you on the spot. So anyway, they, ter- they are now put on the spot. Jesus says, you say there is no resurrection. Well, how is it then that back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6 of Exodus chapter 3, when God is revealing himself to Moses, that's the passage of the burning bush, and in Exodus chapter 3, he reassures Moses by referring to himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I think we put the verse up there on the screen. Now, if they were familiar with Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5, which says what should happen in the event that a, a woman, a husband dies of a woman, and what should the brothers do? If they're familiar with that verse, then I'm quite certain they are familiar with the calling of Moses and the story of the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. And either way, Jesus draws their attention to that, And he essentially says this to them. If there is no resurrection, then why does God say, why doesn't God say, I was the the God of Abraham. I was the God of Jacob. I was the God of uh, Isaac. And now I'll be your God, Moses. Why doesn't he put it in the past tense if there was no resurrection? But instead, he puts it in the present tense. He says, I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. They came to get Jesus, and he ends up getting them. He says really to them, how is it that you guys can possibly say that there is no resurrection? What kind of religious leaders are you that you could be that naive about those scriptures? Now, the text doesn't say this, but just like the Pharisees back in 22, it says in 22, the Pharisees picked up and got out of there as quickly as possible. I suspect the Sadducees did the same thing. They slink away so as to take themselves off the hot seat. What we do know is that the crowd that is around them in verse 33, it says that the crowd there were astonished at his teachings. So the second group now comes up and they go away, humbled really, in his presence. Now the interactions continue. In verse 34, once again we have the Pharisees. It says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophet. Now, prophets. Now, remember, the first group that came to challenge Jesus were the Herodians and the Pharisees, but specifically, it was the disciples of the Pharisees. Here now, back there, that was not the big gun Pharisees. That was the people learning from the big gun Pharisees. Here now we have the big gun Pharisees, the real experience. They've been around a long time, full-fledged Pharisees. And I wonder if in their mind they're thinking, of course Jesus would make the disciples, our disciples look silly, but we're the experienced, we're the wise ones. Let's go in and put that Jesus in his place. And so now they're watching as the Herodians slinked away, as their disciples slinked away, as the Sadducees slinked away, and the Pharisees decide, you know what, let's go take Jesus on. Let's put him in his place. Again, verse 34, the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the others, and they gathered together. They send a lawyer. 
And this lawyer is either picked or he volunteers, one or the other, but he goes to approach Jesus and ask Jesus a question. Now, we have in our minds what a lawyer is. We have some lawyers here in our congregation. Uh, but this is not that kind of a lawyer. Here in the Bible, when it refers to a lawyer, almost without exception, if not without exception, it's referring to an expert in the law of Moses, a lawyer, an expert in the law of Moses. And so you have this expert in the law of Moses who comes to Jesus to pose a question about the law of Moses. Now, if he's an expert in the law of Moses, he probably already has an answer to his question. He's an expert in it. People come to him to ask him questions, but he goes to the Lord to ask the Lord a question. He says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, I've never done this, but people have, and I've read enough places where the number agrees. Apparently, there are 613 Old Testament laws. We know the Ten Commandments. Well, there's 613 commandments. And somebody took the time to count them up. I'm going to trust them on this particular one. This guy comes to Jesus and says to him, of those 613 commandments, which of them is the greatest of those commandments? I imagine as an expert in the law, he's familiar with each one of those. And so he wants to get into a useless debate as to which of them is most important, as if it means you can ignore the other 612 or something. They're all important. Follow every one of them. Uh, it could be a response to that question. But he wants to get into this debate. And in his mind, no doubt, he already has picked which one he is. As a matter of fact, factions formed in that society. They divided the Old Testament law, those 613 commandments, they divided it amongst commandments of things you should do and commandments of things you shouldn't do. And certain religious groups, uh, pharisaical groups, emphasize what you should be doing. Others emphasize what you shouldn't. And so here now Jesus is going to answer this question, and he's going to say it's number 42. And they're going to say, well, that's in this side. Now this group's going to hate him. And he's going to say it's 308, and this group's going to like him, but this group's going to hate hate him. They put him, they're trying to back him into a corner again where half the group isn't going to like him anymore based on the answer that he gives. So, Jesus answers them. And he doesn't answer them by getting into an argument about how this law is more important than that law. But what he does is, he points to a law which sums up all of the other laws. And he says in verse 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. It's called the Hebrew Shema. Two of the most well-known verses to the Jewish people, I would imagine still today, but certainly in that day, were Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Here's what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, uh, excuse me, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. Now, I want you to notice how the chapter goes on. The chapter goes on and it says, And these words that I command you today should be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you rise. Jesus points his lawyer to a verse that all of them should have learned by heart and put to memory. He quotes them, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses uh, four and five. 
Notice what it says in verse 6 there of Deuteronomy 6. These words I command you today should be on your heart. And so it's very likely that everyone that is standing in front of them had memorized this verse. Not only were they told to put it on their heart or commit it to memory, verse 6 says that they were to be teaching it to their children. So if they're doing their job as parents, they should be teaching these things to their kid. Look at uh, also in verse 6 and 7. It says, and constantly be speaking about this verse with others as you walk in the way, as you wake up in the morning, and when you lie back down. So these would have been verses that this guy and these guys would have been intimately familiar with. It's interesting that in Deuteronomy 6, chapter 8 and 9, or verses 8 and 9, go on to say this, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. This is a a former Jewish community center. And if you go around to a lot of the doors and the frames that have been existing here in this building, you'll see there's this little plaque kind of thing that is on the doors. And what that was is related to this verse. And it was inscribed on there the name of the verse or the verse itself or whatever. And as the, the folks, the Jewish folks would go in and out of a room, many of them do it at their homes, they would just touch that little verse, essentially say that little prayer. What it's also referring to here is what are called phylacteries. We have a little picture. Uh, maybe just hit the lights real quick for this one. Mark, you're right next to it there. And you got it, my friend. You see this little box that is there on this fella's head. You could go to Jerusalem today, and the more Orthodox Jews that you would come across are going to have this. I imagine there's people scattered around the United States. Maybe uh, uh, there's a place down in, in South Jersey where there's a lot of Jews um, that... Uh, or Orthodox also in parts of New York. Well, that is called, you put the lights on, thanks guys, that is called a phylactery. And it was, it was put right on the head or it was put on their hands here. And it was sort of wrapped around their hand. And it was inside of that was a scroll with a Bible verse written on it. And the Bible verse that was written on it was, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And so here now you have a Pharisee more than likely wearing that who's got the verse right between his eyes and doesn't know it, doesn't realize it, isn't aware of it. And so says Jesus, he says to Jesus, what's the most important law? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. Jesus says, you do that, and you will naturally keep every other law. Jesus' command is essentially this, love the Lord with everything you got. And that applies to every one of us. That's what he commands us. Love the Lord with everything you got. You will likely fail in that endeavor. But that's okay. Because in those failures, when we fall short in our attempt to love the Lord with all we got and instead find ourselves loving sin more or loving ourselves more or loving pride more, we come back to the Lord and confess that as sin And the Lord washes us and cleanses us, and we know that we're washed and cleansed. And what's the result? We love the Lord even more. And so he says, love the Lord with all all that you have. Notice in verse 39, Jesus adds a second commandment. He says, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord with all you got and love your neighbor with the same intensity that you love yourself. There are some that will look at this verse and see three commandments. Love the Lord with all you got, love your neighbor as yourself, and love yourself. 
And they'll make some case about how it's so important it is to take care of myself, love myself, be kind to myself. And somehow they end up at a massage place or something like that. You know, there's this process. This scripture isn't giving you permission to love yourself. What the scripture is doing is saying you already do love yourself and you're pretty good at it. The moment you wake up and you get out of bed and the dog wants to do what the dog wants to do or your kids want to do what they want to do, the first thing you're thinking is everybody just be quiet. Greg needs a little time. Greg's got to go here. Greg's got to get a cup of coffee. And then I'll care about other people because we think about ourselves naturally first. And Jesus is saying here, love your neighbor with that same intensity. How different of a person would you be? How different of a society would we we be if the passion of our heart was to love other people and to love the Lord our God? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all you got. Love your neighbor with the same intensity that you love yourself. Those are the two greatest commandments. And in those two commands, all of the other commands are covered. If you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, as Mark adds that word mind, you will not be worshiping and serving other gods. You will not be taking the Lord's name in vain. You will honor God in your thought life and with your attitude. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to steal from your neighbor. You're not going to murder your neighbor. You're not going to lie to your neighbor, and so on and so forth. And so here you've got a group of guys. They approach Jesus. They hope to back him into a corner, set him at odds with a sizable portion of the crowd that is there, and instead Jesus backs them into a corner. And instead he gives them something to think about. And I think in doing so, Jesus was gracious to us. He has given all of us something to think about and meditate on as well. How are you doing with these two great commands? of which all the other commands rest. Are you loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are you loving him with every part of your being? Are you leaving nothing back in the endeavor of developing your relationship with him? And also, are you loving your neighbors with the same intensity that you love yourself? You know, I think a sad thing that we see often as Christians is we have the first one down. I love God with all my heart and all my soul, all my mind and all my strength. Shut up, stupid, over there to that person. We love the Lord our God, great. We're not doing so very well with treating those around us, and oftentimes we treat them like dirt. Jesus says it should not be, that those two should go hand in hand with one another. And so I want to close this morning with the scripture, John, 1 John chapter 4. He says this, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. If the love of God is real in our lives, it will be demonstrated in the way in which we treat other people. And I would just encourage you, meditate on that. Allow the Lord to search out your heart as need be. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. And we'll bring the worship guys back. Father, we confess that so often we neglect the second portion of, this, of these two great commands. 
And Lord, typically it relates to people that we don't naturally agree with. Those that like us, those that are our friends, those that are similar in our thinking, we're fine with loving. But Lord, those that uh, don't seem to align with who we want them to be, sadly, we treat like dirt so often. And Lord, as John said, these things ought not to be for those that name the name of Christ. Lord, you uh, have loved us so well even while we were your enemies. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, by, in your word, by your word, Lord, you would search out our hearts and you would reveal each area of our lives where our response to others may not be uh, honoring to you or pleasing to you. And, Lord, maybe it's the first time we've ever really let you dig down deep and search that out. And, Lord, in your kindness, we ask that you would do that. There's an area of our lives which has yet, Lord, to be sanctified by your Son. And, and Lord, our desire here as a group of believers is that every area of our lives would be brought into subjection to your Son. And so, Lord, as uh, the psalm says, search us and know us. Try us and see. Lord, take every worthless affection out and replace it with a hunger for you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.